Fred. I did it. I'm unmuted. You did it, man. You know, I know apps can be finicky, um, but it is funny to me how it can be a struggle to get people locked and loaded on the show. Well, what can I say? I am uh, I am a baby boomer at heart, but a Gen Zer on the phone. <laughs> um, I'm putting out a tweet about this, and then we will go. You want to throw me a retweet here, bud? Like signal boost me for for just a second. I would love to. I don't check my mentions. I have moved my mentions completely off of my tweet deck in an effort to save my mental health. Um, do you not get push notifications when someone who you follow mentions you? Nope. Turned them all off. Wow. Very healthy by you. All all gone. Twitter um, is a, a cesspool once you hit a certain number of followers and uh, don't so need it. You're saying, so you're saying you agree. You think you have a lot of followers. You don't need that many for it to become accessible. What's the number? What's the threshold? I don't know. I think it's like, I think if you have fewer than a thousand, Twitter is fun. I think once you get, once you get over a thousand, people start, people you don't know following you and you're not excited when people reply to your stuff. Like, I think, I think once you get to, once you get to a thousand, it, it, it really changes the experience, I think. So, do you not have push notifications for the Brooklyn Nets PR account? <laughs> I don't. I don't have for that. I probably should for the same reason that, like, I used to watch reality TV. <laughs> so, that was the segue into you did not get the notification precisely 1 o'clock Eastern time that Jock Vaughn was named head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> well, I got, I got the notifications from uh, – I do get my notifications from, from the newsbreakers who I, from like Shams and Woj. And uh, I did see that one come across. Yes, I am aware that Jacques Vaughn is now the full-time coach of the, uh, of the Nets. That's like, what, so what do you, uh, I mean, this is your element really. Like, what do you make of this entire thing with Udoka coming in? Are we podcasting right now? Is that a thing? We're podcasting. Yeah. This okay. Is, we're live. So, we got, we got people in the room. We got, people listening we'll have people listening to this in the future hello people listening to this in the future um you know i'm a big past present future self kind of guy what's up anyone listening to this recorded on apple spotify or uh, the call on app itself yeah we're live we're podcasting so what do you make of of the jacques hire then i mean and everything behind it and uh you know the fact that you know it was reported widely that they were very close on Udoka, and obviously it didn't end up happening uh, what do you make of the entire ordeal of them just landing on Bond after all this? Is this a deflection to know that I was going to ask that to you, so you jumped in line and it spun it back on me, or do you genuinely want to know what I have to say? Well, I, I have a feeling you know more about it than I do. So <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just messing I, with you. I, I think it'll be better podcasting if you say your opinion before mine. Because you probably well, just, have better background information than I. All right. I'm going to stop with the dumb banter. Yeah, so... Look, I mean, when semantics matter in the NBA in many aspects, but particularly in job titles, right? Um, whether that's 
how we've seen people get promoted from GM to president, and there's really no monetary bump, whether that's someone being hired just as a GM, a.k.a. for the longest time. I mean, through the entire time Elton Brand was the GM of the Sixers, I was saying he's not president, and that means something. Like, Sam Hinkie was the president. Brian Colangelo after him was the president. And lo and behold, they ended up hiring Daryl Morey over him. So, I mean, Jacques Vaughn being named acting head coach, he was not the interim head coach. That's a that's a difference. Um, I'm still making calls, and I'm going to head to Barclays Center pretty shortly after we hang up here um, before I end up writing something over at Yahoo. Um, but what I'll say now is, like, I firmly believe Jacques Vaughn wasn't under the impression this was going to be the outcome. Everyone seemed to be. Sorry, I just got a phone call. Um, everyone seemed to be pretty much under the impression, everyone involved, let's say, under the impression that this was going to be Ime Udoka's spot. And whether that was by this past weekend um, or whatever, um, but last night, I mean, Mark Stein was the first to write it over Sunday. Shout out to Mark. Um, I mean, the rumblings by Friday when they had that game, I believe it was in Washington. They went to Washington and Charlotte. So whatever the order was, I forget. Um, but I remember they played Friday um, or whatever it was. Yeah, it was, Washington, it was Washington and then Charlotte. So by the time that that Washington game came and Ime was not head coach, people were starting to wonder. And there was already talk of, you know, was the league office getting involved? Um, you know, I certainly heard the league was um, in conversation, let's say, with Brooklyn and other people, you know, to find, to get this thing over the finish line. But I did hear from one person recently that, like, they didn't – they weren't the ones that blocked this. Um, so – my early read is that, yeah, the, the pushback and the voices that were telling Josiah maybe don't do this might have won out. Yeah. What, what say you? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton of inside information on the background of how it ended up flipping from Udoka to, to, uh, to Vaughn specifically. What I can say is that after the Udoka part of the news got out last week, when it was reported basically across news platforms that however you want to phrase it, it was imminent. Uh, he was, they were planning to hire him. The hiring was likely had a million different ways that it was phrased. So many people around the league were, I don't even want to say outraged. I, there were people who, who were close with people inside that Nets organization from other teams who were just like, it was almost like they were genuinely disappointed. Like, my goodness, what has become of this organization that they are making this hire at this time when Udoka is suspended for things they don't even necessarily know yet because they haven't even done their full investigation yet because how could they because it's been six seconds. Uh, there were people who were just like, I think, I think flabbergasted is honestly a good way to put it. Like the, the reaction inside the league, in my experience, and maybe it's just my bubble of people in the league who I talk to, but I don't think it is. In my experience, the reaction around the league was 
basically the same as it was in the public. Like, I don't think this was a media fabrication short, sort of thing. I don't think it was a media bullying somebody into changing an opinion sort of, sort of thing. I think around the league, people felt and reacted the exact same way as people in the public did, um, which is why it was just like so shocking that it happened and why, even though it's just crazy to pull a reversal like that, I mean, why I'm not, I'm not floored by them ending up with Jock Vaughn. You're, you're right. Around around Friday, Friday, Saturday, I guess Friday was when they played in Washington. So around Friday, you kind of started to hear murmurs of like, why why is Udoka not there yet? Like, what's what's preventing this? And I actually don't know what the answer is still. But obviously the answer is something. Something was preventing it. I don't know if it was the public reaction. I don't know if they were doing their due diligence and they found something that they decided, oh, you know what? This is actually not worth it when we thought it would be. Uh, I don't know if they just thought there's already so much noise that we have here. We don't need to bring in more. Uh, I, I really have absolutely no idea, but obviously there was something because it didn't happen. Yeah. I am still working through details before being confident to say certain things publicly. Um, one theme definitely was that the process for getting a suspended head coach who was suspended for this particular event of sexual impropriety with a subordinate and whatever the complicated, like, you know, legal web that comes from the outside firm coming involved and whatever for, for this to even like, legally get over the finish line i think that was something that was at least something it was at least a speed bump along the way that 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 slowed it down i don't know anything more than that that i can say confidently right now unfortunately um but also i think i mean i'm gonna write more about this later jock vaughn was someone that uh a lot of people in the organization and a lot of people on the coaching side, to be fair, um, believed should have gotten a chance at this job after the bubble in 2020 um, before they hired Steve Nash to begin with. Um, and so I don't really think they've made dramatic leaps forward. I mean, they beat Washington and Charlotte um, and obviously played a tough game against Dallas, but this is also a team without Kyrie Irving right now and I mean for obvious reasons uh, like can you really compare the job of what Jock Bond has done to what Steve Nash was doing and differences I don't know if the sample size is big enough and the context is apt to like make a declarative statement in that regard but clearly like it's working clearly it's sustainable enough to, to be at this um, at this point where he is the guy being named to be a head coach um, and there's a lot of people in the league who think he got a raw deal in Orlando um, where I think he got hired before the 13-14 season or maybe it was the 12-13 season. Um, I'll have to get my facts right. But it was definitely in the beginning of the timeline, um, of not to be a shameless shill, uh, but of my book where they trade Dwight Howard and then the Magic were just you know, right at the front of the line of the rebuilding wars along with Philly and Boston and uh, the, the, the the people that were trying to go get Joel Embiid and Andrew Wiggins and whatever. 
and there was this weird coaching hire changes and the rugs pulled out from under him uh, with trading Tobias Harris and uh, and the weird, like, Urson. I guess the Urson only so much stuff came with Scott Skiles, but I don't know. Yeah, there that was, was Scott like, Skiles. That was, that was the Ibaka trade. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot of synergy with the roster, and I think ultimately a lot of head coaches in a rebuild get – let go when the pressure starts to get put on the front office, right? For the lack of results and people seem to be under the pressure that might have been at least part of the reason for his ouster with the magic. So for him to be the interim back in the bubble and not really get a fighting chance and to kind of turn down the Pelican job by all accounts to be passed over for Ime and to now get this role, people on the league, like the coaching lifers are definitely happy. And during all of this, uh, uh, negative attention that is swirling around the league. It seems to be something that's being hailed as a win for the good guys. So I guess we'll take that. Sure. I mean, that's that's a silver line. I, I've always heard good things about Jock Vaughn, and he's a San Antonio guy, and people in San Antonio have always spoken very highly of him. Uh, you're right. He There were a lot of people who thought he should have gotten that job out of the bubble. As for as for how they've been the last three games, I mean, they destroyed Washington. They beat Charlotte. They played Dallas tight. All of that said, like, this is not the coaching situation that Steve Nash had because yeah. Kyrie Irving hasn't been there for any of those. And ultimately, yeah. isn't that the most challenging thing? Isn't trying to figure out a way to make it work with Kyrie and Ben Simmons and Kevin Durant to where everybody is motivated, playing the right way, playing hard and showing up to work. Like, isn't that the ultimate challenge with this team? Like you, you look at a head coaching job for the most part, your head coach is, is, is your, is your boat captain. Right. And I feel like the head coach of the nets at this point is just the guy who's got to make sure that he has enough lifeboats for all the passengers. And that's it. Like that's, that's kind of what you have to do. And so once Kyrie's back, if Kyrie's back, I, I'm assuming that he will be, but who knows? Uh, there are people who disagree with me who know more than I do. But assuming that Kyrie is back, assuming you get some semblance of a of a healthy Ben Simmons looking Ben Simmons there, the question is going to be how do you manage those people? Not those players, but those people. And are you able to put out a product out there that is that is defending at a high level, that is running the sorts of actions and sets that you want them to run? Uh, Brian Lewis just wrote a story about. Uh, in the New York Post about Kyrie essentially ignoring Steve Nash's play calls consistently near the end of the Nash era. And, you know, that's something where it's like you got to have guys running some some of the stuff that, that you want them to run. Um, and I know that was a thing with Kyrie in Boston at times as well. Uh, so, and he's not the only player in NBA history who's had that. But it's like I've always been a big believer that I would rather have a coach who has – C plus schemes and A plus buy-in than A plus schemes and C plus buy-in. I'd just rather have my guys running average stuff really well than not giving a crap about the great stuff. Um, and I just, I mean, look, it's, it's a tough job for any coach considering all the circumstances they have in Brooklyn right now, even though you get to coach Kevin Durant, who is as good as ever. But I don't think we're going to know the buy-in, whether it's going to be A-plus or B-plus or C-plus or D-plus. Like, I don't think we're going to know until we actually see it happen and see for ourselves. 
Um, so the other side of this game tonight at Barclays Center, the New York Knicks. To be honest, I haven't watched much of the Knicks this season because well, I have. I so you're let, me give, let me give you my <laughs> let me give, give you my preamble. So. The beginning of the season, I like to spend watching the teams that I'm curious to see how they're going to turn out. And New York, funnily enough, with John Hollinger's semi-viral tweet this week, I've been expecting New York to be a plucky 10-seed type of team. You know, they're, they're, they're a solid NBA team. They're not bad, but not really expecting them to be particularly good. Um, and to me, what's going to ultimately define this next season. And I think in terms of how it will, it will help define this current era of New York being guided by Leon Rose and Tom Thibodeau um, is that how decent they are and the, and, and the fashion in which it's occurring, I think will ultimately potentially result in some type of movement, whether that's, you know, they held these picks, and young contracts to not move for Donovan Mitchell. Will there be someone else they'll try to go get? Or will there be changes to uh, the leadership structure there? So I don't know if that stuff happens now, unless, you know, the Knicks started out 10 and 1 or 1 and 10. You know, I don't think, I wasn't expecting that to come to a head until maybe around the trade deadline. Um, so they've, I've, put, I've put them on the back burner. And my question to you is was that assessment? Has that assessment been wrong in any way? Um, and if so, uh, sh- share some light. No, I, I think I think that's about what they are. They're, you know, you mentioned the Hollinger tweet. They're 16th in offense. They're 16th in defense. They've played 10 games. Five of them have been against teams currently below 500. They've won all five. Five of them have been against teams currently above 500, and they've lost all five of those. Uh, they're they're just kind of a right in the middle sort of team right now. And I think that's probably about where they're going to be. I, I, I could see the offense dipping a little bit from here. Uh, just like I could see the defense getting a little better from here. You know, Mitchell Robinson has been hurt for a little bit and has been caught in foul trouble a few different games. Like he's only playing like 22 minutes and he's missed two or three games already. So having him being able to play and that kind of stuff is is going to help them defensively. And Quentin Grimes has basically, he's played 20 minutes all season. He's basically missed the whole year. And he's unquestionably, when he's out there, their best perimeter defender and the guy who is going to be going up against top-notch, uh, you know, ball handlers, you know, he'll guard Trey Young and he'll guard good wings and all that kind of stuff. And if you get those two guys out there, I think that's going to help. Uh, the bench unit has been good to very good at times uh and that's really propped them up the starting unit has spacing issues and and i think they're the type of team where i think that stat that i cited before of just like five and oh against teams under 500 oh and five against teams over 500 i I think there's something to that like they're the type of team who their flaws are are pretty exploitable when they go up against good to great teams where for example they just don't have shooting in their starting lineup. Mitchell Robinson's a rim diver. RJ Barrett's a slasher. Julius Randle's a guy who defenses aren't going to guard when he's at the three-point arc. And, and Jalen Brunson can shoot. 
but he prefers to operate inside the three-point arc. And, and when you got three guys around him who aren't shooters, plus whoever's playing the two, whether it's Cam Reddish or Evan Fournier or Quentin Grimes and all those guys shoot threes. But if you've got three guys around him who don't shoot and he takes a little while to get his post moves off and all that, it's just like the spacing is clunky. And when you're playing a good defense that's long and athletic and disciplined and knows how to help properly, knows how to recover on shooters, all that kind of stuff, it, it's just easier to exploit that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, and so I think they will continue to struggle against good to great teams. Uh, but I do think they have the talent to be able to beat those teams that, that should be below them. And I agree. I think they're kind of on track. I think I picked them to win, I think I said 39 to 41 wins in my preseason prediction story. So I, I, I still feel about the same way. Yeah. I mean, people will always talk about how Tom Thibodeau will get them to play hard. And that will be enough on a lot of nights to win. And I think we're seeing it with Utah and Portland and their hot starts um, where, you know, a lot of teams, a lot of veteran teams aren't necessarily down the regular season as much right now, or people and teams are players and teams are slow playing injuries and uh, rest times and what have you, where the teams that are coming out at the start of the year shot out of the cannon, ready to play and ready to prove something are winning. Um, but they do, when you do lack certain elements on your roster and your artillery and you have holes that gets exposed. Um, but I'm, I'm curious with the lack of shooting with New York, I was talking to someone with the team the other day who was at least excited at the fact that Cam Reddish has been playing and at least he's had some big shots in late game moments, that, that game against Memphis, right? That overtime game. Um, what have you seen out of him and, and where do you think he can continue to grow in this, whatever is being built in New York right now? He's, he's been way better than I expected. I'll tell you that much. And I think he's been way better than a lot of people there expected because they, they traded a protected first round pick for him in January and he came over, didn't play much, finally got into the rotation for a few games after the Knicks had some injuries. And then he got hurt and missed the whole rest of the season. He came out in the preseason and he, if everyone were healthy to start the year, I just do not think there is any way that he would have been in the rotation and had the chance to prove himself because he, he comes out in the preseason, he's playing minutes in the preseason only because Quentin, Quentin Grimes is dealing with a foot injury that he's still dealing with. And he was not impressive in the preseason. I think he shot 21% from the field in the exhibition games. And, and it wasn't just the percentage. You know, preseason percentages, you could shoot – 70% or 20%, and it, it shouldn't really matter. It's the preseason, and it's so few games, and the situations are just not the same as the regular season, yada, yada, yada. But the problem was, like, man, he was just taking, like, mid-range pull-up after mid-range pull-up. And, and if, if he is going to find a place in the league, it's not doing that. It's being able to kind of be some sort of switchblade wing, right, who can – who can guard well and actually be disciplined defensively and can catch and shoot from the corners and maybe uh, attack a closeout to get to the rim, run well in transition, but you're not giving the ball to Cam Reddish and say, go ahead, go. You're not encouraging him to take three dribbles, pull up from 18 feet with 17 seconds left in the shot clock. And I know that was something the Knicks have worked with him on because the Knicks are really, really 
tried to work towards a more analytically friendly shot profile. And to their credit, they have. They're taking very few mid-range shots. They put a lot of emphasis. I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about how they feel like they've kind of found a market inefficiency in floaters specifically, in part because Mitchell Robinson is incredible, legitimately unbelievable, at offensive rebounding missed floaters. He, he, he offensive rebounds like 28% of missed floaters when he's on the floor and, and league average for an entire team is 31%. So, so Mitchell Robinson on his own is almost as good as an entire team. There are seven teams, seven full teams that are worse at offensive rebounding floaters than just he is. So the Knicks have really dug into floaters because Mitchell Robinson is unfreaking believable at that. And they have a lot of guys who are good at it quickly and Hartenstein and um, Brunson is good at it. And then Derek Rose has a floater. Um, and and they're trying to be more analytically, uh, try to find those sorts of little nooks and crannies to where they can make their shot profile more analytical. And, and Reddish falls into that. And I don't know what happened between the preseason and the regular season, but it just kind of all changed. Grimes started the year hurt. Reddish comes out the first game of the season, scores 22. And the question was, is he going to keep that up? Because we've seen him have big game, but then he falls off for four games, right? Then he has another big game, and then he falls off for six. And then he has two big games, and he falls off for eight. And, and, and we've seen that sort of inconsistency out of him. And he still goes back and forth between making these wild plays where he throws up a, an eight-footer that has no business leaving his hands. But for the most part, he is shooting well from three. I think he's around 40% right now. I think he's been much more disciplined as an off-ball defender. Uh, he has started the last couple of games with Grimes hurt and, and Fortier now playing on the bench. He's playing within the offense. He's been good in transition. Uh, he's, he's scoring efficiently. Uh, he's pretty much cut the mid-range shots. Like He's playing like a good role player, not a role player who is trying to play like a star. And, and I think that is the adjustment a lot of people have been waiting for. And if what he's going to be this season is what he's been for the first 10 games, then I think the Knicks have themselves a guy who uh, maybe, at least I didn't think they necessarily would coming into the year. Yeah. All right. Last one for me. My guy is A. Hartenstein. I say my guy being that uh, I just – I called it early last January, February – I tuned into a random Clippers game. I texted somebody on the staff. I said, Isaiah Hartenstein is going to make $10 million this summer. And here he is. I think he's clearly one of the most elite backup centers in the league, which is a bit of an oxymoron. However, um, to have a backup to have a backup who can start and be positive is almost like as rare in a center market. Like, so many teams have just gone the route of using a veteran minimum guy who used to be a legitimate starter, like an Andre Drummond, um, which, you know, and, and those players have pretty glaring weaknesses on one side of the ball or what have you. Um, there are a few teams who actually have backup centers who could like legitimately start. That's been, I think, a glaring weakness of Philly for so long behind Joel Embiid, and that's why Sixers fans are pretty hyped up about. Montrez Harrell right now, but even Harrell, you know, has his shortcomings on the defensive side of the ball. So the passing, uh, the energy, I love Isaiah Hartenstein. Are you in the fan club like me?
Wow. Wow. What? What an ode. Uh, I'll say, when you watch Hartenstein play, you you can tell that he was teammates with Jokic. Like, you can tell. I've spoken to him about it. Like, Jokic really influenced how he plays. He's a really good passer. He's a really good outlet passer. A lot has been made locally about the Knicks playing at a faster pace this year. Not actually playing at, like, some sort of roaring fast pace. They're just kind of middle of the pack. But that's a nice leap for them. And part of the reason why is because the bench unit plays fast. And part of the reason the bench unit plays fast is because Obi Toppin's always running the floor, because Emmanuel quickly likes to rush it up, and because Derrick Rose is a really good pace point guard. But it's also because Hartenstein is a hell of an outlet passer. He gets boards and he just finds guys, and they go. So, Jake, you wanted to get niche with this, and I'm getting even more niche. We're going to talk about his outlet passing because everyone talks about his high post passing. This is why the outlet passing is. This is why they're listening. (laughs) The outlet passing is a big thing for them. The Knicks centers would get rebounds and they would stand there. Nolan's Noel, Mitchell Robinson, Taj Gibson was good at this because Taj Gibson is good at everything that is like this. You know, that's so unbelievably niche that no one would ever want to listen to someone talk about it on a podcast. But. But, you know, Noel's Noel would get, get an offensive or defensive board and, you know, would stand there and look for the guy and, and they'd have to sort of walk it up. And this is certainly not the only reason the Knicks are playing a little faster this year. They, they've made a concerted pace to do that. They have an actual starting point guard who is who's quite good in, in Jalen Brunson as opposed to playing patchwork with Alec Burks and, and, you know, Kemba Walker, who was a shell of himself last year. And they were slow getting into their offense and all those sorts of things. But... The outlet passing from Hartenstein has been well-welcomed, and he's been pretty good. He's had good moments for them. He's had good moments defending the rim. Um, he's scored well around the rim. He's a very good screener. Uh, I, I also think, like, I don't know. There's Look, Mitchell Robinson is going to be the starter. They just gave him four years and $60 million, and they gave Hartenstein two years and $16 million. I don't know, man, there's something there with him in the starting lineup. And, and I'm not surprised. I, I thought that was the thing that I might be saying 10 games in at the start of the year, just because Mitchell Robinson, like I said, is an unbelievable starting rebound, uh, offensive rebounder. Uh, I, I think he's probably the best offensive rebounder in the East and and maybe the second best one in the league behind Stephen Adams. Uh, Tom Thibodeau said recently that he thinks he's the best offensive rebounder in the NBA. And it's not a crazy claim at all. Uh, but part of the problem with Mitchell Robinson is because he's such a good offensive rebounder and because he doesn't really have a game outside of the paint, I think it's possible he spends more of his time on the floor, a higher percentage of his time on the floor with at least one foot in the paint than any other player in the NBA on the offensive end. I really think that's possible. And, And when you have guys like Randall and Brunson and Barrett who all want to be inside the three-point arc in order to be their best. Mitchell Robinson clogs a lot of stuff up. And Hartenstein is like, he's not a stretch five. And you don't want to use him as a stretch five because that limits the sort of different ways that you can use him, uh, you know, as a passer and, and that kind of stuff. But he's got a really good float game. And that is at least able to stretch this guy out to eight feet so somebody can get away on a drive, right? You can't leave him open because he'll make that floater. Uh, he he has a really good dribble handoff game. He is able to do all, you know, people hear good screener and they think, okay, well, he's good at pick and rolls and he holds his screens and it's hard for somebody to run around him. But that's not just it. He's a creative screener. He's good on pin downs. He's good on flares. He 
he'll 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 seal his own man on penetration, you know, like that kind of stuff, which I think just generally helps their offensive spacing. And when he's been on the floor with the starters, the defense has gotten annihilated so far. So I'm interested to see how that trend continues and if they continue to get killed defensively when he's on the floor with the starters, it's not viable. But it's going to be an interesting trend to follow because I do think him with the starters changes the dynamic. And uh, right now he's actually playing more minutes per game than Mitchell Robinson. So uh, I am intrigued to see how all of that develops and continues. And then you got to add in the fact that like Obi Toppin is playing unbelievably well this season and they've got to be thinking about some ways to get him and Julius Randle together at the five too. So they have a lot of guys who could play the five there. Hardenstein, uh, I expect to close a lot of games with energy level too. I just think that's that'll be happening. Um, all right, we've gone long enough. Anything you want to ask me? Anything else you want to say? Anything you want to plug? The floor is yours. Man, um, check out the athletic. Read my stuff there. Um, are we taking questions from anyone, or are we? Are we? Is this it? We ha- we haven't had any call requests. If someone wants to pop in. Please do, uh, but I don't think I do. Had, I to... do have a question. I, I have a question for you. Feel free. You've you've become Mister Insider. We've been we've been friends ever since you were writing really nerdy niche trend stories like I used to do, and now you're you're big Mister Insider. So I do have a question. Okay. About the Knicks, they didn't trade for Donovan Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wrote about this concept in a mailbag today, which you can read over on The Athletic. They didn't <laughs> trade for Donovan Mitchell. I have no problem with them not trading for Donovan Mitchell, even though Donovan Mitchell is playing at an all-NBA level right now. And if he keeps playing this way for the whole year, he's going to be on MVP ballots, no question. Uh, but I have no problem with it because I do believe trading for a first star in the door is not the same as trading for a second or third. Cleveland had Mobley, they had Allen, and they had obviously Garland. And they were in a position to make a trade for that. If the Knicks were going to trade, let's just say off the top of my head, R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel quickly, and three unprotected firsts plus three more protected firsts, if they were going to trade that, the cover would have been too bare for them to go out and get somebody else. In order to trade for a star, you basically need to either have the, the pieces remaining to trade for a second star, the cap room to sign a second store star, or somebody in house who you believe you can, you have a really good chance a question of raising into that second star. Yes, no, it's a monologue into a question, and I'm <laughs> leading into it. Here is my question. That was what I laid out, and here is my question: If not Donovan Mitchell, their plan was to put together young players and a lot of picks, which they've done well and they've done prudently, right? Yeah. And and use that to trade for a star. But if not Donovan Mitchell, there will be somebody else available, no question. But if that player is as good or better than Donovan Mitchell, chances are he will cost as much or more than Donovan Mitchell, which means that we'll be sitting here having the same conversation regarding the Knicks that we had about Donovan Mitchell, which is, well, you can't trade all that for a first star. And we'll be doing it yeah. over and over and over again. So, Mr. Big Time Insider, <laughs> what do the Knicks do about this? Because it seems to me that the plan, if the plan is trading for the first star in the door, then the plan, unless that first star is like a top three player, 
unless that first star is like Kevin Durant or Giannis or like that's it. And the chances of trading for those guys is extremely low. Obviously, Durant better than Giannis. But what what do they do? Where do they go from here in February and next offseason in order to execute this plan, not in a hasty but in a responsible way? Well, the one way to do it is let's call it the Clippers model where you get a free and commitment from someone and then you have the trade lined up for his running mate in conjunction, right? Um, the problem is that obviously hasn't really worked swimmingly so far for the Clippers. And even to go so directly as in just signing two guys together, although it did work obviously in Miami, um, it, it hasn't really borne a lot of fruit for the Brooklyn Nets, right? So... I think the way to do it responsibly to use your verbiage is to go make the Donovan trade or the next trade and still have something in the cupboard because look, like you're not giving up more. Five picks is a lot. Five picks is ultimately the the like real draft capital value that, um, Cleveland gave Utah and Minnesota gave Utah for both Rudy and Donovan. Um, so that's pretty much the bar. And maybe we'll be revisit. Maybe we'll, we'll be revisiting the price for a top tier superstar in the near future, depending on how this Brooklyn thing goes. Right. And that's not me reporting or anything, but that's just everyone around the NBA looking at this and looking at, uh, to bring this back to the other side of the city, the theme of the show, like if it is Kevin Durant or if Kevin Durant being available sparks other guys, like it's going to probably be five picks or five years worth of picks to the tune of unprotected swaps. Um, that's kind of been the, the, the threshold here. So New York, to my understanding, has 11 picks over the next uh eight years, something to that effect. They definitely have eight picks that they're capable of, of, of legally trading. I know that. Um, so if it does take five, you still got three. And three picks got you DeJounte Murray if you're the Atlanta Hawks. So you got to get that first star to be able to be in the position to get the next one. And if you've got, the, if you've got Donovan or in that in that you know scenario where the Knicks do end up pulling the trigger and getting a thing done, or it's the next guy, you know the the overwhelming likelihood is that it's not Kevin Durant. That I mean, those very very rarely does a top five, an objectively top five player become available for trade. I mean, even when Anthony Davis got moved to the Lakers, like he was considered to be like the the, the most overqualified second banana. It wasn't like he was considered to be, you know, Kevin Durant, right? So I think you're more than likely, more likely than not, that first guy you're going to be able to acquire by trade is of that all-NBA top 20, you know, all-star guy, but not necessarily like a surefire top 10, top 5 player. So if you have to have one of those to get the other one, like – you got to have the first one. So, and I do think that 
if there's a player who has better fit, you know, there were a lot of questions about what a Donovan, Jalen Brunson backcourt, and obviously now he's become Louisville incredible defensive player uh, that he was up in Cleveland right now, which I would assume if he's doing it there and there's a lot of help with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen and, you know, the rest of the, the defense in Cleveland. So he's, he's, I mean, he, he looks like a free safety out there. It's ball hawking on place. He's um, been fantastic. He's been, he's been amazing. Like he, if it's, it's too early to have the awards conversation, but I, I think he's got a really good, like if we're, if we're talking way too early award stuff, like first team on NBA is in play for him. I have to run it for sure. That's for sure. Like really so, yeah. Possible. so yeah, all I'm saying is like, if you got if you had gotten him and he's playing like this, I think it would have really helped come for agency come the next time someone requests a trade, you know. So the next, I I think the next time one of those guys who maybe has a more obvious fit, whatever, someone that you think it really is worth it, the next time they come to the table, I mean the Knicks will be at the front of the line and they're going to be able to out out compete or outbid anybody. They didn't in this scenario, um, so. I think even the loss might not to say it'll be an overreaction, but I think it could it could further embolden New York to do it too. Seeing how well it's worked out for Cleveland. Yeah, I guess I guess my biggest problem with their plan, and and I would I mean I mean you're right that the way to do it is is sign one and trade for one. But the problem is they've given out all this long term money that's tied to their books. Like yeah, they extended Randall for four years. They extended R.J. Barrett, and I'm not criticizing the Barrett extension. I think that was totally team friendly and fine. They signed Jalen Brunson for a three plus one. And again, I, I didn't criticize that contract. I think that's basically market value for someone like Jalen Brunson, who, by the way, has been really good. He's been really good for them. Uh, and, and he's totally, if, if the player that he's going to be is the guy who he's been so far, which is just an efficient 19 points and seven assists and plays really hard every night, that is worth, what, 20, $26 million a year, which is what they gave him. So I, I, I don't think it's problematic that they gave out long-term money to Evan Fournier. They gave out long-term money to Mitchell Robinson. They're, they're locked in. I mean, they, they aren't really going to have cap space until 2025 at the earliest, unless they make some major moves. And, and you know, 2025, they could have a lot. Uh, but 2025, a lot of teams could have a lot because there's an anticipated cap spike that year with, with new revenue from um, – you know, in but the, it's New the York TV contract. It's MSG. Yeah, I mean, also, the also, let's be let's be real. Twenty twenty five is a long time from now. Like that's that's not around the corner. You know, this is this is season three for this front office. Like the the front oh, office no, came 20, in twenty two, twenty three used to feel really far in the future too. Yeah, that's true. So did so did nineteen seventy four, but the, the it, it was far in the future at one point. Uh, I, all I'm just saying, think, all my, I'm saying my, is my, this my is point, uh, my point to that is that like people are, are operating on two, three year cycles. Like they are looking that far ahead in advance. I don't think oh, that's yeah. No, yeah. that's that's true. But my my point is not that it's unreasonable in 2022 to look ahead to 2025. My point is that when this plan was implemented a couple of years ago. I don't think it was to bring somebody in in 2025. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's really all it is. And a number of the picks that the Knicks have from other teams, it's possible, could expire before them because they have a protected 2023 from 
Washington, Detroit, you know, one of those teams makes a leap next year. You know, maybe that 2024 pick contains or something like that. Like there are, um, you know, it's just, I, I don't think this was put together with the intention of 2025. I think this was put together with the intention of make something big in like 2022 or 23. And I don't really see the pathway for them to do it responsibly. And the reason that I keep using the word responsibly is because I think that's the, I think the reason that they didn't make, and this isn't just me just throwing stuff out there. I mean, this is what I've been told from numerous people that the reason that they didn't go through with the Donovan Mitchell deal was because they knew that they couldn't give up everything they had for Mitchell because then they'd have Mitchell and a bunch of stuff and they knew they needed to have a second star next to Mitchell and they needed to have... Sorry, my phone rang. And they needed to have some way to go get another star. And I don't, I don't disagree with that logic. I think that's the right way to play it. But yeah. if that's how you feel, then it makes me wonder. Uh, it just makes me skeptical of a plan that by definition is to go trade for the first star. Because uh, unless, basically the way to implement that is then you just have to bank on your ability to just make an incredible trade. Like you basically need to be James trading for, you know, Daryl Morey trading for James Harden when he was a six man in OKC and identifying that. And there is a reason that the James Harden trade is still discussed a decade later. It's because those kinds of trades don't come around all too often. So I'm, yeah. I'm skeptical of the execution of the plan has been pretty good, but I'm just skeptical of the mission statement. And uh, if they pull it off, props to them. But after the way they handled it this year, they're just, they're a front office who is handling, it just, they have a lot of cooks in the kitchen too. So it's hard to evaluate, right? Like they have so many guys in their front office who have different voices. And that's almost how, it's almost how this feels sometimes, right? Where it's like, okay, the mission statement is go trade for the star. But then it's like, okay, here's the star. Oh, but we're not going to trade for them. So it's very, it's a very strange process that they have going there. And I'm just, I am curious to see how this ends up. Because right now, if we're going to end on the place we started, they are very much in the middle, which is not as damning as everybody seems to want it to be. But you have to be in the middle with with a plan that you believe is going to work and get you to the top. And uh, they're not tanking. So I, I don't, I'm just curious to see how this is all going to go in the long term. Yeah. All right. Speaking of long term, that was a long, long rambling final question, <laughs> but I thank you for your time. And I look forward to seeing you at Barclays Center this evening. Thanks, man. Great, great uh, coming on. See you guys.